This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Uh, I'm Paul Newton I'm from the Cambridge Assessment Network Division. Um, Neil is Assistant Director of Research and Validation at Cambridge ESOL, where he works on a range of interesting projects um, to do with cutting-edge technology. Um, and he's also the Vice Director of SurveyLang, which is uh, an international consortium of eight organisations which are collaborating together to uh, run the European Survey on Language Competences in 2011, I believe it is. Um, from December, Neil's stepping up to the role of Director of the SurveyLang uh, project, so good luck with that, Neil. Uh, and we look forward to hearing of some of the interesting technical challenges that you're going to be facing. Technical, ethical, political... Conceptual, thank you. You name it. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Um, Linking assessments to international frameworks of language proficiency. And I guess the the, the crux of the talk really is is in the title, nearly, because it it implies that, um, that international frameworks of language proficiency exist and that they are there to be linked to in some uncontentious and reliable way. And I suppose that's really what a lot of this talk is about. What is the status of... uh, of, Well, in fact, there's really, I suppose, only one game in town if we're talking about international frameworks, and that is the the common European framework of reference, as it's called, um, hands up anybody who's never heard of it. Okay. Um, you see, that's up from six months ago, I would say, um, in this country anyway. Uh, yeah, it's... Um, and, and the question really, I suppose, is the, the whole talk is really about the status of the CEFR, to what extent uh, or in what, what, in what form... Should we understand it? How can we use it? Um, it's uh, the, the, the whole common European framework, I suppose, is uh, is a challenge for people to um, to to interpret. It must be it must be a disappointment to many people who pick it up, thinking um, this is the book that will. Um, that will tell me what to do and, and how to do it. And, uh, and it will answer a lot of my questions. And they, they must be quite sort of frustrated when they get not even to the end of the first page where they read, one thing should be made clear right away. We have not set out to tell practitioners what to do or how to do it. We are raising questions, not answering them. And, and I guess the world is divided between people who find that uh, liberating and who find it immensely frustrating. People who would like to see in the common European framework something solid, tangible, that they can um, use in some way if somebody explains it to them, and others who would much take a more sceptical view of it. OK, so in outline then. Um, right, let's try this. Uh, no, I will, that's it. Yeah. So, first of all, just in the margins, I will make the point that we're talking here about proficiency frameworks and not qualifications frameworks because uh, the two things don't necessarily really correlate very much. Um, 
And then I'll give you a little brief history of the common European framework, how we got where we are, and ask where do we go from here, that is, what are our goals, what would we really like to achieve. I'll talk, not at great length, I hope, about the, the, the mechanics, if you like, of making a claim of linkage to the CEFR so that it is a, a valid claim. Is it a complex process or a, um, can you take it out of a, a, a recipe book and do it in half an afternoon? The European Survey on Language Competencies, which, as Paul says, is something that's keeping me uh, busy at the moment, is interesting to talk about and give you a little introduction to in this context because, really, it's one of the uh, quite visible uh, European projects which is making the Common European Framework more visible because we are reporting on the Common European Framework and will either... um, will either move, move us forward in terms of achieving a, a greater uh, common understanding or, of course, may not. That won't be our fault. And finally, um, having talked mostly about the CEFR more or less as it is, I will float the question as to whether the CEFR is, in fact, the, the whole story. And this is the bit which, well, I'll be interested to hear what I have to say um, because it's something that I'm sort of thinking about at the moment, really. We we do have, in fact, um, two European frameworks, well, two European platforms of working on, 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 on frameworks, I guess. There's the Common European Framework, which everybody knows, and there is the Languages of Schooling platform, which many people may not have come across. And uh, we could actually say, well, to what extent here are we looking at a possible single framework? I think that is interesting to talk about because as an assessment body, we should be trying to put, you know, to have a framework which which allows us to organise our thinking on a range of quite complex um, language education situations. Okay. So, first point then. We are talking about proficiency and not qualifications frameworks. And, um, of course, there are, there are in development, and this is something that if Tim, if he were here, would know everything about, I know nothing about. There's a European qualifications framework uh, under development which will act as a, as a translation device to make national qualifications um, more readable across Europe, it says. Um, Part of that kind of set of documentation is Europass, which is an online system that includes the Europass language passport, which I'm pretty certain uses common European framework levels. So to that extent, you might say that somewhere in this qualifications framework there there are references to the CEFR. But... uh, Basically, as a general principle, you don't expect qualifications frameworks to relate strongly to language proficiency frameworks. And I'll give you a little illustration of this from close to home. Um, this is the, uh, our own NQF, National Qualifications Framework. And uh, 
you can see it's got um, a number of... Well, you can see where foundation GCSE and higher fit in at level one and two. These are sort of deficit levels, called entry levels, A level there. And um, when we were working on a project called Asset Languages, which was a, a multilingual um, language, alternative language assessment framework for the UK, uh, it was accredited on the NQF like that. Okay? So that uh, in terms of common European framework levels, which were uh, actually in the original document uh, which was uh, promulgated by the, uh, by the, by the NQF, by the, whoever they are, the ministry, uh, these were called approximate, as if everything else was really precise. But approximate CEFR levels. But you can see that uh, uh, what, we, what you'd think of as higher GCSE or our intermediate asset language was said to be at B1. Uh, and so on, and A1 was oh, A1 was really the yeah the that whole that whole set of levels was was adding up towards achieving A1 at the end of of there. That was actually a a more or less defensible kind of link if we're trying to think in terms of okay proficiency. Um, that's probably a, a defensible kind of indirect link, okay? Nobody was saying at the time GCS, higher GCSE is B1. Um, but indirectly, you could say that that, Im, that was implied by the, by the location in the framework. Uh, that was defensible, I would guess, say, for languages like French, uh, but not for a language like Greek or Russian, where, of course, the GCSE would be a far lower level of competence. And perhaps if you're thinking about the, the topmost grades, you wouldn't ask what a D at GCSE means, because I don't think anybody ever has asked that question, um, let alone, and not in terms of proficiency. OK, but there we are. That makes a kind of sense. But now I'll show you how um, Cambridge ESOL exams, that's English language exams, have also been accredited in the NQF, and it looks like this. There we are, you see you've got C2 is now down here at um, there. And, uh, and first three levels, A1, A2, B1, are all relegated to these entry levels here. So a very different um, set of, of different value interpretation placed on these. Even if you're interested, how could this be? I'll just tell you the story. Um, come on, there we are. There was a piece of work done. It was published under it was a document called Pathways to Proficiency, I think. And they took as the basis for their argumentation um, the case of the special needs native speaker. So somebody who had a, a problem with their functional literacy. And they were considering then the literacy skills of reading and writing. And they said, well, when does somebody, as it were, escape from this deficit, it would be when they achieve entry three level. And if we look at the common European framework, well, B1 is that level at which you achieve a certain independence in, in, in the language. You can move as a, an independent agent and transact stuff. So they said, OK, so B1 corresponds to escaping from a functional literacy kind of deficit, and that'll be there. And, of course, everything follows from that. So... If you're a lear the learner of English as a foreign language was essentially 
put in the situation of the native speaker with a literacy problem. Uh, of course, this was talking about literacy because, of course, the native speaker's oral skills would be considerably higher, but that wasn't the issue. So all the skills were equated to B1. And so that's how you finish up with that uh, uh, interesting deficit view of, uh, of what it means to, uh, to have achieved A1 or A2 or B1. Does that strike you as odd? There is a kind of logic in it. You can defend it. You can say, well, the same people might be applying for funding to do a language course. So on that basis, why not? But it just shows you the point I'm making, really, that, uh, that um, proficiency is an absolute kind of ability to communicate and what its value is, as, what value society places on it in terms of where they put it in a framework, are perhaps two different things. So, the, case, the CEFR then, and how Cambridge ESOL is linked to it. Published in 2001, a continuation of over 30 years' work by the Council of Europe, and uh, which takes in things like threshold level, the very influential level published in 1977, um, waste stage. And the fact is that Cambridge ESOL's set of exam levels has developed in a kind of synergistic relationship with the Common European Framework. They have sort of impacted on each other over those last 30 or 40 years. So, in part, you could say, the CEFR formalised conceptual levels that were already familiar to ELT learners, teachers and publishers. And they, the levels were familiar because, in part, they existed as um, Cambridge exam levels. This is a quote by Brian, who is, of course, a co-author of the Blue Book, and he said this. Um, the CFR levels didn't suddenly appear from nowhere. They've emerged in a gradual collective recognition of what the late Peter Hargreaves described as natural levels in the sense of useful curriculum and, uh, and examination levels. The process of defining these levels started in 1913 with the Cambridge Proficiency Exam that defines a practical mastery of the language as a non-native speaker. There we are. Uh, so, and... This is rather an old slide. You may have seen it if you've seen anything I've done, but I'll just run through the history because it's a little bit interesting. And then I'll show you another slide that's related but different. Um, so, yeah, 1913, CPE, our most um, advanced level and still our most advanced level, and, of course, the only level that the syndicate considered had social value to make it worth certificating. And that remained the situation until just before the Second World War when the syndics grudgingly agreed that there was room for a, a, a lower-level certificate, uh, which became known as the first, which was obviously lacking in foresight. But, uh, but then, and then, again, nothing happened until uh, the Council of Europe's initiatives with uh, the threshold level, which led to, several years later, the development of PET, and the waste stage specification, which led to the uh, construction of KET. And you can see that the, 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 the ethos, the purpose, 
of, of the thing is now changing. It's no longer a, simply a set of or a couple of elitist levels. It's, it's clearly a learning ladder. And when you see it as a learning ladder, then you can see there's a, a bit missing at the top. So that was supplied by CAE. And there's a little bit missing at the bottom, which we have at this level. We have um, the, only the young learner exams, flyers, movers, starters. But there we are. That's our, uh, that's our levels system. And I've put in the, the, the uh, CEFR levels there as if they are uncontentious. And from our point of view, I suppose they are uncontentious. We've written quite a lot about this um, kind of um, uh, kind of close um, organic link between the CEFR, and it's all true, of course. We have been very closely engaged with these levels. Um, for some people who uh, complain that we are not playing the game by simply saying, but the CFR is our levels, everybody knows that, it's a matter of historical record, uh, and that's not good enough, we come over, I suppose, as being arrogant or, or complacent. Um, but I don't think, well, perhaps we are but we're not holding. This is the other picture I wanted to show you of, of um, the levels. And this, you can see, is the levels as a measurement construct. These are measurement units on a scale called logits. And these are the thresholds of those exams at five levels. And those are sort of typical ability profiles for the candidates taking them. So you can see, for example, that KET is... Um, an exam which most people who take it pass, and uh, so it has high facility. Um, and so, but whereas CPE, you can see that the pass and fails are fairly easy, evenly balanced, interestingly. You can also see that in measurement terms, the, uh, these appear to be getting narrower. Well, they are getting narrower in measurement <laughs> terms, and that might strike you as counterintuitive if you think, yes, but we all know that, in fact, every level takes much longer to achieve uh, as, you, as you move up, you know. And that's true as well. But in a way, this, I guess, represents a kind of compromise between the, the observable gain and the learning effort. You know, at the beginning, the observable gains are very rapid, but they are very observable. So it's worth having a, a step in the learning ladder. It's motivating to have steps that are low down. And there are noticeable gains that you can accredit, even though they didn't take long to achieve them. At the high end, it takes years and years to move, say, from C1 to C2. Um, but, but the people who are playing the game at that stage are, of course, dedicated learners. They're, they're, they're fans, they're nerds, whatever, but they, 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 they love English. So it doesn't matter that they take years. But still, you're not going to see so much measurable difference simply because, because it's in the nature of things. Observable difference is proportional, I guess, to, uh, to the time it takes you to learn things. Um, if you know nothing and you have a lesson, you know infinitely more. And after two lessons, you know twice as much. After you know, a thousand lessons, one more lesson makes very little difference. So, so there we are. That's, um, that's a picture I, I wanted to show you because in the end, a large part of the argument 
for saying our system or our levels are linked to the common European framework comes down to a, to a measurement argument, or the measurement argument supports a claim that we want to make. If we can say nothing else, we can say whatever these levels are, they're the same every year and they're the same from session to session and version to version because we, we have a, a very strong handle on, on constructing tests and grading tests to apply these levels. Okay. So, it's worth remembering that the CFR does have two purposes. And this is part of the problem with people um, reading it too simply or not reading it at all. Or, uh, it is, its first and most important purpose was to be a comprehensive, transparent and coherent framework for language learning and teaching. And the second purpose, which actually historically was quite a late addition, was to define levels of proficiency which allow learners' progress to be measured at each stage of learning and on a lifelong basis. Now, as we know, purpose one is dealt with mainly in the body of the text, the bit that most people never look at, and it discusses the many, many ways, all the parameters, whereby contexts of learning vary and are different. Whereas purpose two is conveyed chiefly through the descriptive scales, the can-do statements that says, you know, I can do this or can do this or can do this. And it asserts that despite the differences between contexts, it is possible to define broad proficiency levels. So to some extent, the second purpose denies the reality of the first purpose, if you like. Or it says that, OK, they're both true, or this qualifies what we can achieve with our set of levels, perhaps more realistically. So where are we now, then? Well, the CFR is really ubiquitous in Europe at policy level. You cannot move without um, talking about the Common European Framework, less so, obviously, in terms of its impact in the classroom. In the classroom, perhaps nothing has changed in many places. And if you do want to, say, to, to find out how to link your exam to the Common European Framework, there is a manual. It's a manual for relating language exams to the CEFR, which was developed and revised and... and, um, and uh, critiqued and redeveloped and is now available on the website. Uh, and Silt, volume 31, um, have you come across the Think Silt campaign? No, it hasn't, it hasn't hit the billboards yet, but it's there. There are little posters, there are little A4 posters anyway, uh, saying Think Silt, um, raising your... You, this is the, the Studies in Language Testing series that uh, is published by CUP and uh, it's uh, basically coming out of ESOL research and validation. And Silk Volume 31 is a volume of case studies of trialling the manual and we have a chapter in that on asset languages, which I was talking, you about, talking to you about. And it was actually largely explaining why we or how we did not use the manual in, in the purpose of developing, in the, in the process of developing. And I'll actually show you a little bit later about how we got by quite happily without using the manual. 
there's a range of exemplar material available on the Council of Europe website, or Cambridge ESOL provides it, or various other people provide it, illustrating different levels, and that's very useful, actually, illustrating levels for different skills and languages. Um, ALTE, the Association of Language Testers in Europe, has just updated its guide to language test development, which has been on the CO in the Council of Europe website uh, for about 10 years, but it's been revamped in a more CEFR-friendly form. So, all in all, you could say that the Common European Framework has given language testers uh, a focus of work, generated a lot of work, but it is work in progress And what exactly we should be trying to achieve is something that we could debate. Okay, and we've 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 been very explicit about our where we stand on this. Cambridge ESOL's position on how we should understand the CEFR and use it. Uh, And I'll quote a bit from our leader, Mike. um, Who in research research notes thirty-seven, if you. if you have to go to the bookshop to lay hands on silt, research notes is just, a, you know, it's on the internet. You can download any version, any copy you like. Research notes, volume 37, is devoted to the subject of the Common European Framework, so it's highly recommended to you. Um, he makes three points. Uh, the CEFR itself is deliberately underspecified and incomplete. It is this feature which makes it an appropriate tool for comparison of practices across many different contexts in Europe and beyond. And its principles and practices should be integrated into the routine assessment procedures of an examination provider so that alignment arguments can be built up over time. It is unlikely that any single report can provide satisfactory evidence of alignment. Again, it's us sort of claiming the high ground in terms of our historical continuity, I guess. But, but, but this, is all, this is all absolutely true. Um, alignment arguments and assessment standards need to be maintained in the long term. No good aligning one version of your test. You have to align the system. Using a range of techniques and professional processes, including item banking to establish common measurement scales, routine test validation processes to quality assure test outcomes, and iterative cycles of test development and revision. Okay, so to to sum up, really, we are positive rather than positivistic. Um, We see the CFR as a useful point of reference, but it shouldn't be reified or treated as some kind of tablet of stone, I guess. With a, with a meaning to be extracted. We should relate each context to the CFR on its own terms and not apply the CFR to every context in some standardised way. And that's fairly obvious, that that's what you have to do. And basically treat the CFR as an open system rather than a closed one. And alignment to the CFR is a validity claim because validity, as we now sort of orthodoxly understand it, is to do with um, the interpretations you make of test performance or the decisions that are justified on the basis of a test result. 
So in the case of languages, if you're saying on the basis of this test, I say that somebody is at level B1, then that's a validity claim and you would want to be able to justify it. As such, you'd have to integrate that claim into every step of your um, examination cycle. It's not a one-off. It's not something you do in a little group on a Sunday afternoon or a Saturday morning uh, and say, here's the report. Okay. Let's just... This is actually a, a, a presentation in its own right, but I'm going to sort of just keep it quite short and summarised. Okay. Um, hmm. Let's... Um, okay. Right. Um... Yeah, because there are other things I want to talk about, and I've talked about these this, this in detail before. But it's worth just, just in outline. Validity as an inference to some real world. With, we begin with the world of the test. We are trying to make an inference to the real world of language use in some way, and that's the direction. This is what we're interested in. These are the observations we have to base our, our um, inferences on. Now, that looks like a single step, but, of course, it isn't a single step. It's a whole set of um, steps, and it has been represented like that um, by uh, a number of writers, and we basically sign up under the same kind of view, Kane, Messick, that... It's sort of a, it's been called the bridges argument. That you have to sort of move from one part of the process to the next part, and at each step you have a validity claim to justify. So you start off with basically designing a test, constructing a test. And you should do that, we say, starting from some model of the cognition, the processes, the knowledge, the skills of the learner you want to test, and some idea of how those processes or how that knowledge can be engaged by the features of the tasks that you use in your test. So how, how would you argue that your test is testing the things which you're interested in making conclusions about? We, um, again, coming back to the SILT series, um, there are um, books there on, on writing and uh, reading assessment by Cyril Weir and um, um, Stuart Shaw for writing and Hanan for, for reading. And um, they're not in the SILT series. There's vol volumes in there and right, aren't they? Um, and... Those are where we have sort of... Uh, or where Cyril, basically... Uh, do you know Cyril Weir? From uh, Bedfordshire, University of Bedfordshire. Has sort of examined our exams, the common European framework, and the cognitive processes which seem to be implied in our test tasks and explored the relation between them and, uh, and come to some interesting kind of 
conclusions which could be used as part of a validity argument to say here is evidence that what we are testing is related to proficiency at this level. Okay, so you can construct a valid test, you hope. The next step, and you arrive at a piece of performance which you've observed, and the next step really is to um, derive a test score from a piece of performance by a candidate. So you've got to score the test. And that may be very automatic, but certainly in the case of, say, scoring speaking or scoring writing, exactly what you penalise or what you, uh, what you credit, what you give credit for, is, is, very, is, is central to exactly what it is that that speaking test tests. So the manner of deriving the score is part of your validity argument. From the score, you then have to sort of move on to derive what you could call a measure. Because the score is a record of a single event. And you have to ask, well, if the same candidate took the test on another day, a different version of the test, would they get the same result? And in any case, how does this single number relate to an interpretation? So you want to somehow be able to generalise from the particular score to, to a more general measure. And there are many aspects to this. Partly it's, it comes back to the question of reliability. How reliable is your test? Because if it's not reliable, then your score is going to vary anyway from version to version. And so the idea of being able to generalise from it um, doesn't, doesn't hold water. It's, it's also um, to do with the, with the way you... Well, it, the, the, the way we implement the measure operationally is with our item banking system. So we, we have a model whereby... Well, I've, I've shown you the, the, the common scale with the difficulty values, the difficulty of each of the thresholds, the ability profile of the candidates. That's the model that we're using. And with our approach to pre-testing, mostly, so that when we give a, a, an exam, we already have statistical information about the items. They are calibrated. We know how difficult they are. Um, it is possible for us to take the score in any test and convert it into uh, a measure based on knowing how difficult the items were. So one way or another, you arrive at a generalised measure of your um, candidate's ability. And the final step is then to be able to make that um, extrapolation from the measure, the point on the scale, to what that point on the scale means in terms of that um, frame of reference that you're trying to interpret in relation to. And that, I suppose, takes you back to your validity argument and also to all kinds of other ways in which you might look at your candidates and study them and say, somebody who is passing my test at, with this level is able to do things because I've observed them doing them. Various, various ways in which you would justify that final step. And that's really all I want to say about that sequence of operations whereby you would construct a validity argument uh, that would link your test to an interpretation on the Common European Framework, for example. 
Right, let's move on to a couple of interesting things now. Uh, the alignment to a framework implies uh, a cross-language dimension because there are other languages in the framework. And a problem with nearly all the CFR linking studies that you'll find published, certainly if you look at Silt Volume 31, about the case studies of using the manual, they address the case of a single language, perhaps even a single language and a single level. Um, and asset languages, which is where I... Ah, thanks for coming. Asset languages which is where I sort of came into thinking about framework construction like this, actually had 25 languages in the system um, and six levels because it was common European framework oriented. And faced with that problem, we had to take a high-level, top-down view of the framework construction process. We had to think how to link vertically across the levels and horizontally across the languages in terms of comparability. It was quite obvious to us that treating each language and level separately couldn't lead to the emergence of a coherent whole. You cannot make hundreds of micro-level decisions and expect them to add up to something which is internally coherent. And I'll come back to that in a sec. Standard setting is the process whereby you set a cut-off on a scale and say, this is where B1 starts. If you achieve this level, you are B1. If you achieve the next level, you are B2. And the manual places a great deal of emphasis on task-based standard setting for objectively marked tests like reading or listening, where you don't really have performance to look at. It it devotes a, great, a lot of paper to task-based standard-setting methods, which are essentially where you get a group of judges who you trust to sit down and suitably trained and familiarised with what the common European framework means. They basically look at the tasks, not at any students, but they look at the tasks and they say, what level would somebody be if they got that task right? And they do that for all the tasks and they come to a conclusion which allows them to put the uh, cut-off somewhere. That's about it in, uh, in, 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 in a sentence. Uh, we didn't use any task-based standard setting in the construction of our 25-language framework. And, uh, and that was something we admitted... Uh, in, our, in our chapter, but we could explain why not. I'll just show you how we did it. We piggybacked on what we knew about the Cambridge ESOL levels. We already had the common scale, and I've shown you that nice picture of it, and I've put it up vertically instead of lying down here. So we had a model of what a scale should look like, not in terms of the actual numbers, but in terms of the proportional distance the idea that A1, A2 is a wider measurement distance than C1, C2. You know, that was our expectation or our model. And then at pre-testing, 
So not with live candidates, just with preachers. So this is not a high-stakes situation at all. We get the teachers to provide ability ratings. What level do you think your learners are? So they gave levels to the learners. We started off doing this with um, national curriculum levels because we thought teachers will be familiar with the meaning of, la- of national curriculum levels. And at those lower CEFR levels, you could more or less think of them as being somewhat, somewhat similar. And at least they might be c- consistently a- applied. Later on, we developed an, an, an instrument where we had uh, cur- um, um, those national curriculum level statements and... Uh, common European framework statements, sort of combined elicitation tool. So we have estimates of the abilities of some candidates for a pretest, and because we know the scale, we can say, okay, if somebody is rated at being, say, A1 or A1+, that would put them somewhere here on our scale. So there, that locates the, the learners. And then when we have our data from the pretest. We can analyse it, and the item difficulties that we can estimate from are anchored to the scale via the ratings. So those are the ratings of the candidates by ability, and those are the difficulty of the items, you see? Abilities, difficulties. So therefore, our item difficulties are also anchored to that scale. And we can do that, of course, for adjacent levels and we can build up something like a scale in that way. Then we construct live tests by selecting items from our calibrated collection of items. There we are. And when these are used in a live test, we can grade the candidates on the basis of their performance on these tasks, which are of known difficulty, which are calibrated from this population here. Okay? So, so this person, let's say, achieves A2 and this person doesn't achieve A2. So in this way, the, the thresholds from our template scale are carried over to our developing um, asset languages scale. OK? And then, of course, there's a second stage where you actually have a chance to, um, to use anchor tests to verify this overlap to say this is how it's come out from the teacher ratings, but does this overlap appear to be true or not? And you could use anchor tests. We use both live candidates who took a a live asset test and an anchor test, and the anchor test uses items from two levels. So that gives you data to link this data set to this data set and verify that this overlap is, is, uh, is the same or is different. So you can somehow progressively improve the integrity of that measurement scale. That was the theory, and that was the practice up to a certain level. Um, Difficulty was that you need data, and for 25 languages, only only two or three of those languages are actually producing much data. So so we were limited in how far we could carry this through, but but it it was a way of approaching the problem in a way which we, we thought, we still think, was rather principled, and um, certainly we didn't miss not doing task-based standard setting. 
from what I've told you, you can see that I'm not a big fan of, um, of task-based standard setting. And, uh, in fact, I've written about that at excruciating length. Again, it's uh, uh, Research Notes 37, the one that I referred you to from Mike Milanovic's paper. That's got uh, my um, treatment of task-based standard setting and why it doesn't really... It's perfectly OK in its original context but doesn't really make sense for the case of cross-language alignment. Because in particular, we can't really assume that judges from different language backgrounds will understand the text of the CEFR descriptors in the same way. Um, Their standards may be culturally determined. Um, It's a big leap of faith to say that you can show people the text of the Common European Framework descriptors and they will all look at it and say, ah, now I know what kind of person you're talking about. Uh, because if you read, you know, can communicate quite well on something or other, um, makes a few errors, then people bring their cultural kind of expectation of what they think the level is to how they understand that. And that's a, a, a well-known problem which had already emerged from the kind of sample materials and the things that people were providing as their illustrations for their language of common European framework levels. And it's not something that should surprise us. Um, Can I ask a question? Yeah. But doesn't that defeat the object of the common European framework? Um, no, I don't think so. It's supposed to be. You're supposed to be able to describe lots of different languages using the... Yeah, you can do it, but you have to be realistic about how people will understand it. You know, the idea, that's the purpose of it, and it takes you a certain way, but you, 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 you find that if you ask a Dutch person what C2 is or something, or B2, he will describe that as being a really low level or because you know he because in Holland everybody speaks English so well that they wouldn't begin to sort of think of calling something C1 unless it was you know um, fantastic. Uh, that's just a cultural bias, and and you know so you have to be prepared to to accommodate that and find a workaround. And what I'm going to show you now, Jill, is a workaround. <laughs> okay, so subjective judgments are needed but they need to be maximally constrained. Just offer people as little latitude to make decisions as is possible. Now, one obvious way of doing this is to align languages to each other before setting standards. The the analogy with the thermometer is one I've used. Think of the history of the thermometer. First thing is you invent the thermometer. And the second thing is you decide to use the same scale on all of your thermometers and you find ways of calibrating your thermometers so that they do actually report the same temperature on a a common scale. And then it makes sense to begin using thermometers and developing this phenomenally sophisticated shared understanding of what a temperature of 39.2 means. Quite a bad fever, okay? Um, worth staying in bed. We, we share sophisticated understandings of the scale because we have the scale. And we can, you know, and that's, that's really the, the analogy here. If we could align the languages to each other 
and then set standards, then begin to interpret what it means to be at a point on the scale, we would be cutting out an awful lot of, uh, of, of potential difference in interpretation. Uh, and the best study done to date on this is uh, Sevra 2008, which was a speaking study, uh, multilingual. We had, um, we had five languages represented, uh, English, French, German, Italian, Spanish, the same languages that are now being used in the European survey. And we collected two kinds of data uh, on these speaking samples, which were videos. The data collected at the conference... And, of course, all the, all the judges rated, that were invited to the conference had some bilingual or multilingual competence at a level which enabled them to make judgments about French and German or English and Spanish or Spanish and Italian, OK? So they could all make these determinations over two languages or, or more. At the conference, they rated the samples against the Common European Framework in a traditional way, and they discussed and they agreed what levels the, these candidates were. And, and the simple fact that we were looking at two languages in the same session forced people to, um, to, to challenge or to reconcile each other's views of what levels were. There was quite a lot of interesting discussion. So from that, from that um, data, let's say, we have the, the closest we can get to an authoritative um, standard setting for, for those samples. But the other data collection that we did before the conference was a, um, a, a one where each participant judge was sent a subset of tasks to rank, to rank rather than rate. So they had 12... I'll show you the picture now, I think. There it is. It was a web-based activity. Each judge saw a set of video samples... And all they had to do was rank them by sort of pulling them up or down to say, this is the best and this is the worst. Not what level they are, just which is better and which is worse. OK? And I've got a lot of these ideas from Tom, and I've certainly used Tom's you know, stuff on, on, on ranking uh, to, to, to explain and justify what we do. The outcome of that data looks like that. OK? You've got the ability as estimated from ratings and you've got the ability as estimated from rankings. You can run them through the same IRT model and you'll come up with, OK, different scales but comparable scales. And when you align them, that's what you see. So not bad for a first try particularly if you think that the rankings were done before the conference with no training and all kinds of problems of a technical or a, 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 a other kind of, kind of thing. So a pretty good correspondence, you'd have to say. Now then, if you then say, OK, on the basis of the ratings, which we will consider to be authoritative, we will set um, common European framework cutoffs. OK. Well, having done that, then you can read off those cutoffs on the ranking scale, obviously. And if you can do that, then you can think, well, I could take another language, like Polish or Portuguese, 
And I could align that to this framework simply by doing another ranking study. I don't need to do any standard setting. I just need to rank Portuguese against English or French or German or, or, or several of them. And what will come out will already have cutoffs on it. So there we are. You've abolished the problem of setting standards for Portuguese or Polish or whatever else. Once you have this core of well-authoritatively um, standard-set samples to work from. Now, isn't that a nice idea? And that's the kind of sort of cutting through the Gordian knot of, of setting standards that, that the ranking thing promises us. OK, and that brings us neatly to the European Survey on Language Competencies. Um, because we'll certainly be using alignment as part of the way of looking at um, our writing tests for, for the five languages we're doing there. I'm not going to take... I think I've only got two slides on this, but it's worth just telling you a little bit about it. So SurveyLang is the, is, is the name of the consortium. Cambridge ESOL is the contracting partner with the Commission. So we're leading the uh, consortium to deliver the European Survey on Language Competencies... And the survey will measure language proficiency in, against the common European framework, that's in the terms of reference, in schools across Europe, in those five languages. And obviously the quality of that link to the CFR is going to be critical to how people will judge the validity of that survey. And a very important part of ensuring that quality or justifying it it has been the effort that's been placed in the construction of those five tests. It's involved very rigorous processes to try to ensure comparability. And the alignment of the languages and the standard setting uh, will be a major focus um, following when the main study is completed. Yeah. OK, so the approach to item writing. We focused on the common European framework in the way we try to define the constructs. Uh, and the, the major aspect of this, which I think really was unique, I don't think it's been done before, was in the, the way the ALTE partners for these languages uh, adopted a collaborative approach. Lots of web conferences, lots of face-to-face -face meetings... Um, working on a, a, a remote authoring platform so they could actually see each other's tasks the whole time. There were... Well, it, some of the tasks that they developed were adapted across languages. Ma Martin is here. He did all of this. Martin can um, tell you more uh, about the detail. Um, but Martin was the chap who made this happen, and it was really, I think, it was, it, it, it was extremely... It wasn't straightforward... Um, so some tasks were adapted across languages, and this was done for two reasons, really. As a focus for cross-language vetting, that is, to get the partners to critically review each other's material and comment on it, in order to develop a common understanding, and also as a possible source of evidence for cross-language alignment in future. I mean, if they really are, if they come out as similar in terms of difficulty, well, that would be nice, because that would give us a simple argument for saying this is how these languages align. For writing, all the tasks were adapted, because we took the view that writing a postcard to your mother saying that you're, I don't know, on holiday or not coming home are, um, is the same task 
whether you're doing it in English or German or French. Okay. Additionally, the field trial that we've just completed, very successfully, I must say, has informed us in making a final selection of the tasks. So we've actually developed many more tasks than we're actually using in the final survey. Okay. So really, for these reasons, the, the language test ought to constitute the most comparable set of instruments that have yet been made available. Um, and it might seem, you might think I'm exaggerating, but essentially it is very difficult to get even people who are partners in Alte, who know each other's work and respect it, actually to get them to collaborate and produce the same kind of tests and tasks, testing the same thing, doesn't come easily, does it, Martin? Martin says no. Okay. The exact kind of sequence of activities that we're going to do for standard setting um, is to be finalised. So I'm not going to give you details, but writing will certainly involve alignment, uh, cross-language alignment, and then independent standard setting, uh, say focusing on the aligned performances and each language separately. That will be interesting uh, to see how much disagreement or agreement there was. Reading and listening will have to use task-based standard setting, but there will also be other bits of evidence that we can reconcile that with. There are self-report can-do statements in the questionnaire that is part of the survey. Uh, there are the adapted tasks that we can look at, and possibly there's the possibility of doing a task-based alignment study, which would be novel and exciting. Okay, so that's all I'm going to say about the, that, that. And it brings me to my final section, and I'm just about okay for time, I guess. I'll, I will try and finish in ten minutes, though, so that there are time for questions and chat and stuff. And this is really, you know, this is where I'm, I'm exploring ideas that are still sort of coming together in my own head. But is the CFR the whole story? It is, um, it professes to be no more than a framework for foreign language learning. But there is another Council of Europe initiative, which is the platform of resources and references for plurilingual and intercultural education, or the Languages of Schooling project, for short, in short, which are two very different conceptions of a framework. In fact, the... Um, the, uh, the, the, the languages of schooling people have sort of rejected the idea of having a set of levels. Um, and I think it may be that there are two projects partly because of a kind of philosophical um, um, divergence between what you might call a very Anglo-Saxon philosophical approach, an empirical approach to uh, the common European framework with its scales and what you might call a continental philosophical approach to, um, to, to uh, the, the, a values-laden approach okay, to the languages of schooling. So they're not so much interested in saying what level. They're, in, they are, they're, they're insisting on the, on the values attached to particular um, ways of dealing with multilingualism. Okay, yeah. They both insist on the importance of descriptors, but of course in the framework the descriptors communicate the meaning of levels 
in order to standardise judgments and describe learning outcomes. In the languages of schooling, they are there to state values and goals and learning activities and to describe learning processes. But there's not a lot of difference, really. The difference, really, is just that they don't have scales. You might see these two areas of work as complementary aspects of a single framework for defining learning goals, planning teaching and evaluating outcomes. And again, actually, Martin is is, um, somebody I've been talking to a a little bit about this because Martin is doing very interesting work now in developing uh, an approach to a generic curriculum and looking at contexts where you are dealing with language education that covers a range of different aspects. The, The second language learner who is learning English and acquiring content, content of schooling, through the medium of English, from a very low base of proficiency. You know, and that kind of work is really focusing on the fact that you need, perhaps, to be able to put all of these different things into your framework picture. OK. Interestingly, the Council of Europe would seem to be coming around to this point of view. If you can... This is, this is from a, a foreword that Joe Shields, who is the head of the Languages Policy Unit provided for the new Alte manual I told you about, the Alte Test Construction Manual. And it's a bit long, but I'll just read it through quickly. The need to ensure quality, coherence and transparency in language provision and the increasing interest in the portability of qualifications have aroused great interest in the CFR levels, which are used in Europe and beyond as a reference tool and a calibrating instrument. OK. While welcoming this... We would also encourage users to explore and share experiences on how the CFR, in its various dimensions, can be further exploited to support and acknowledge the lifelong development of the uneven and dynamic plurilingual profile of language learners, who ultimately need to take responsibility for planning and assessing their learning in the light of their evolving needs and changing circumstances. The Council of Europe's initiatives to promote plurilingual and intercultural education and a global approach to all languages in and for education present new challenges for curriculum development, teaching and assessment, not least that of assessing learners' proficiency in using their plurilingual and intercultural repertoire. And we look forward to Alte's help in doing all of this. OK, I think that's quite interesting, actually. Uh, this is why I put it up. The need for a wider framework of languages. OK. He su- seems to be suggesting that the CFR should be looking beyond its quite narrow foreign languages remit. And we can easily see the Common European Framework as an instance of a more general framework. It just so happens that it has been parameterized and illustrated for the case of foreign languages. And if you have other cases or other aspects of foreign language, perhaps, that aren't covered here you could parameterise and illustrate those equally well. As Cambridge ESOL engages increasingly with linguistically complex educational contexts, doing projects with ministries who are setting up sets of, you know, um, uh, pathfinder schools, teaching through the medium of English, in the case that, that Martin was talking to me about. The need for an extended framework becomes increasingly pressing, in my view. And it's also fairly clear exactly in what respects the CEFR would need extending. 
to foot the bill. It's not a huge extension, it's just a number of rather fundamental parameters. And I've got one slide here where I would try and sort of show you what those fundamental parameters are. It's really, it's, it's um, perhaps going beyond what you can really do graphically, but, uh, oh, it's the next one. But anyway, these additional dimensions, cognitive development, obviously, which is closely linked to linguistic development, but in different ways, in different circumstances. But cognitive development stages are certainly something which is not parameterized in the framework and needs to be. Language as the medium of schooling distinguished from language for social interaction. And this is very much, very familiar from Cummins' distinction, if you you remember your applied linguistics work, between cognitive academic language proficiency, or CALP, and basic interpersonal communicative skills, BICs. And that's dating from the, uh, from the Canadian immersion learning programmes with French back in the 1980s. And his, he insisted and found that, you know, you cannot assume that because kids appear fluent in, and, and, and in, their inter, in their interpersonal communication that they have the basis for doing CALP, for doing cognitive academic language proficiency. So there is a risk that if you don't focus on that, then the result is academic failure because kids haven't got the language to form concepts or to deal with content. Foreign language, which I take to be language for its own sake... Um, as distinguished from L2, which is a complicated idea. I mean, it's a very varied one, but language for some extrinsic purpose, let's say, uh, where you're learning the language because you need to for school or because you want a job or something. (coughs) Mother tongue, this is interesting, against educated competencies. And I'm going to say a bit more. I think an interesting um, input there is Bernstein, Basil Bernstein's, distinction between um, restricted and elaborated codes. Um, I, I put in a little link to that because I, I found a quote that I thought was, uh, was interesting. Let's just have a look at it. Um, yeah, just that one at the bottom there, really. Um, Bernstein pointed out that, that working-class kids... He was looking at why working-class kids don't do so well at school. And he identified this notion of the restricted code, which is how we all talk to each other and use lots of um, uh, dictics and, 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 and elaborated code where you spell things out, you know, and you name things. So rather than say, oh, you know, her, her, her over there did, you know what, uh, you would say, you know, that the cat sat on the mat and whatever. Uh, so elaborated code is more explicit, more thorough, doesn't require the listener to read between the lines, and it, so it stands on its own. It's more like the language of schooling or doing CALP or doing academic stuff. And as Bernstein says, one code is not better than another. Each possesses its own aesthetic, its own possibilities. Society, however, may place different values on the orders of experience elicited, maintained and progressively strengthened through the different coding systems. So that's... um, I put that in because... Because, well, we'll come to the slide. You'd like to be able to say, what is it that native speakers who aren't academic, what is it that makes them so good... You know, what, what, in what way could they be C2? Because the Common European Framework says C2 is not the level of the native speaker or even near the level of the native speaker. We'll come to that. It's, um, and yet, 
if you read the C2 descriptors, they describe things that half the native speakers in the country couldn't do because they're talking about educated competences. So what a, a, a framework of this kind would do would enable a coherent approach to language education, recognising synergies between different language competences and the different purposes of language use in an educational setting and in society. OK. Uh, and this is, yeah, this is my point. According to the CFR, C level C2 is not intended to imply native speaker or near native speaker competence. What's intended is to characterise the degree of precision, appropriateness and ease with the language which typifies the speech of those who've been highly successful learners. But some C2 descriptors of educated competences evidently denote things that lots of many native speakers cannot do. So, if native speakers are lower than C2 in some respects, in what respects would you expect them to be higher? And do we need a D level to talk about them? Well, competences unique to mother tongue language, I would assert, include the linguistic reflexes of a developed socio-cultural competence, that is, culture in the broad sense, and a shared grasp of idiom, cultural allusion, folk wisdoms, etc., and Codes, restricted codes and some kind of elaborated codes, but that depends on how much education they've actually picked up. OK, so here's my graph or my graphic, which doesn't quite capture the whole thing, but um, there is, that's not really a dimension here on our scale, but it's a factor that impacts on every other dimension. This is age, which relates fairly directly to cognitive stage, and fairly, well, very, very directly to cognitive stage, sort of directly to concept formation. But exactly, actually, whether you form concepts at an early age or a later age does depend on which language you're forced, because apart from those basic sort of experiential concepts that you develop without language, all concepts are formed through the medium of language. They are mediated by language. So when concept formation, or if it happens, whether it happens, does depend on, on your language proficiency as well, which is not only determined by your age, but by other factors. There's the native speaker, then, who should, in a way, their, their progression should be strongly marked in, by their age. But let's think in terms of those, that restricted code, which they will certainly develop. And it'll reflect their background, the town they live in, the friends they have, and the jobs they get. And they'll have some, perhaps, elaborated code or codes, depending on where they've gone. But certainly people do have... A, most of us have at least two or three kinds of way of speaking that we can switch in and out of, depending on what we're talking about. And then they have this fantastic socio-cultural competence. They're absolutely fluent in everything, you know, uh, and they know who was kicked off X Factor last week. And, uh, and that's part of actually being able to, uh, to, to interpret all the, the, the talk you hear around you. Then, let's think of the language of schooling situation. Kids who are actually acquiring their concepts through the medium of language in school, basically CALP comes right down to almost the beginning here. Concept formation, and that's the beginning of ac academic language use, is, is a key issue here. If it's not happening by the end of primary, then you're looking at uh, academic failure. 
So they have to be able to form. So kelp and the development of it occupies a large part of that stream. Basic interpersonal communicative skills, something like that. You can compare that with, the common, with our familiar picture from uh, the Common European Framework, where if you look at the descriptors, kelp is what happens at the sea levels, and it doesn't happen below. B levels are all about chatting to each other and expressing opinions and getting by quite eloquently, but nothing about um, academic language use or, or the use of language for doing science. And then you've got the other concrete interactions at the bottom. So... That's really saying that you've got the same kinds of parameters here, but they're being weighted in different ways for the contexts. And, but you could apply different permutations of these to describe any situation you were looking at. That's the idea of that, really. Basically, you, you might have wanted to ask me, what about the levels? What does C and B and A mean? And basically, I think it's not, it's not really a, a difficult problem. Uh, and do we need a D level? No, we don't. Basically... The CEFR shows us how it's done. The lowest identified level is the first point at which there is any significant competence to describe. And sometimes you can see why people have wanted to go below A1 because they have significant levels that are below A1. And the highest identified level is the last one worth describing because it's observed sufficiently frequently in the population. Uh, in the relevant population, okay? So we exclude exceptional cases of artistic or intellectual brilliance, okay? We don't need a D-level for, um, you know, um, I don't know, uh, Samuel Beckett or, or, or Joseph Conrad. Um, we just say we're not interested in that. I mean, that must make sense, surely. People who want to make the C2 level so high that nobody achieves it you know, are missing the point. We've got an exam. We wouldn't have an exam at C2 level if there weren't any candidates to take it, would we? It wouldn't have come into existence. So, basically, the, that's how you define the top level. It's the level where you've still got people in the population who are worth observing. So, and that works perfectly well, I think, for, um, for all of the dimensions uh, so we don't need a D level. We can deal with native speakers as just being particularly good as native speakers typically become at, uh, at, at the top of C. OK, to summarise, the toolkit of resources is undoubtedly useful for a range of familiar contexts. It should be approached critically and, if need be, creatively. And to treat it with too much respect, maybe to disrespect the educational setting we wish to link to the CEFR... I've argued here that there are many complex contexts of language education which require an extended framework to be properly described and such a framework would enable a coherent approach recognising synergies between different aspects of language use in an educational setting. Thank you. Thank you. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.